Our scripture reading today is from the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. If you are visiting with us, Revelation is the last of the books in the Bible. So it's right at the very end. And we'll be studying from Revelation chapter 10 and 11 this morning. Beginning our scripture reading in chapter 10, verse 8. Revelation chapter 10, verse 8. And reading through to Revelation 11, verse 14. Revelation 10, verse 8. If you have copies of the Bible, you're encouraged to open up and follow along as we read God's word and focus upon it. Revelation 10, verse 8. We give our attention to the reading of God's word. And the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for forty-two months." I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Well, beloved Lord, we are jumping in uh, to the middle of the book of Revelation. As a church uh, where I serve regularly, we're working through a series on Revelation. We have come to this passage, uh, Revelation 10 and 11, uh, but you've missed a little of what's gone before, and that's okay. We'll be able to catch up a little bit and still uh, grasp where this text is taking us and what its message is for us uh, today. The book of Revelation is a pretty fantastic book. It is, in essence, a map of the end times. I don't know if any of the children like the idea of pirate treasure. But one of the great fun and joys of pirate treasure is always the treasure map. The map you find that has the little dotted lines that take you around mountains or over lakes until you finally come to the X and X marks the spot. That's where the gold will be. That's where the treasure will be. Well, the book of Revelation is a little bit like a treasure map. Over and over again, the book of Revelation shows us what is to come in the last times. What we can expect between Christ's first coming 
and his ascent into glory and his second coming. It shows us how we'll get to the end, where the treasure will be. It shows us repeatedly the church coming to the glories of the heavenly reward. But it also shows us a little bit of the journey and the path that will come between the beginning and the end. Things that we can expect, things that we can face. And in the book of Revelation, it kind of goes through these patterns of showing us the, the, the entire journey from start to finish. And it will show us once as it shows us the seven seals, for example. And it will show it to us again as it shows us the seven trumpets. And it will show it to us again as it shows us the seven bowls. And so the book of Revelation is a little bit like a treasure map, but then over top of the treasure map are put all kinds of extra pages. Kind of like those transparent pages where the first map might show you the basics, but then you lay another portion on top of it and you see, well, wait a minute. When you come to this area, there's a, there's a bog. There's a bog that, that can't be crossed easily. When you come to this area, watch out because there's a, there's a terrible crocodile that has eaten many adventurers before you. When you come to this area, the hill is very steep, so you better make sure you press on because you're going to get tired marching up the hill. The book of Revelation shows us all these various things that we will face between the first coming of Christ and the second. It prepares us for them. As it's done so thus far in the book of Revelation, we have covered, if we were to read through it, the seven seals and six of the seven trumpets. These seals and trumpets are signs of God's judgment upon the world, and they're a little scary to read. We covered it as a church, and we went over the four horsemen of the apocalypse, if you have ever heard of them. The idea of conquest, war, famine, and death. And these elements are portrayed as horsemen that will ride upon the earth and kill, in some instances, a third of mankind. The trumpets show tremendous tragedies where the seals begin with the idea of mankind doing great and, and dangerous and deadly deeds. The idea of the trumpets show God's judgment through earthly um, uh, travesties, uh, earthquakes, floods, famines, etc. Remarkably, we preached on that section of the Bible just after the earthquake or just before, I can't remember, in Turkey. Uh, we have a missionary in Turkey. Uh, he has said that they believe the devastation in Turkey, the death count, will cross 200,000 people from the earthquakes. They believe that. They, they haven't got there yet. They believe it will because so many buildings are still destroyed. So many people are still missing. Uh, these types of things happen over and over again between the first coming of Christ and the second. They are always signs that God is on the throne. They are always signs that we need to repent. When we think of the idea of earthly disaster, should we say in our heart, are those people more wicked than anyone else on earth? Is that why God judged them? And the answer is no, but unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. God is showing us he is real. He is showing us life is short. He is showing us there's only one way to escape judgment, and it's through the blood of Christ. But as these various trumpets and seals have been shown, there are elements that show an increasing level of evil in the world. There are signs of an increasing level of persecution for the people of God. There are times when the world will be so convinced of sin and worship demons so wholeheartedly, like in the fifth trumpet, the idea is that they'll be tormented by creatures from the bottomless pit, the very 
things they worship and the very things they serve will lead them to face times of great devastation and pain because the wages of sin are hard. The wages of sin is death, says Romans 6.23. And so as you read through the book of Revelation, it gets a little bit chaotic. And it gets a little bit scary. But as God, Jesus, takes the next section of this book and begins to overlay a new map on the pages of Revelation, he shows us something new. He shows us that in the entire journey from start to finish, as all these difficulties are faced, as all these enemies come against the church, God will have witnesses. He will maintain his witnesses in this world in a way that they are upheld with power that their message is not stopped despite all the hatred the world can bring, and that their message will be effective for the purpose to which God has sent it. And this morning, we want to study the idea of these two witnesses. We want to see how God shows us that though the end times will include times of persecution, and though the end times will have times of increased evil, where what is good is called evil, and what is evil is called good, yet... When all seems chaotic, God will continue to uphold his witnesses and the message of his witnesses will not be stopped until his sovereign timing, which we won't be able to cover this morning, but we'll get there later perhaps. And that's our focus today of how God maintains his witnesses through the very trials of the end times and how their message goes out to all the earth. And cannot be stopped. We're going to begin in Revelation 10.8. And I believe these passages are intimately and intrinsically connected. As we study God's word together this morning. We're going to see this in three uh, points as we study. First, we'll see the preparation for witnessing. Secondly, we'll see the identity of the witnesses. And third, the task of witnessing. The preparation for witnessing. The identity of the witnesses. And then the task of witnessing. I noticed Brother Van Dyke used threes a lot. Uh, I don't know if it's a curse or a blessing, my brother. I don't know if it's a curse or a blessing. We begin preparation for witnessing in Revelation 10, verse 8. I'll just go through that passage. Uh, The voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And what you'll notice as John sees this part of the vision, he is commanded to take and eat a scroll. And then after he does so, in verse 10, he takes the little scroll, eats it. It is sweet as honey in his mouth. It is bitter in his stomach. And then he's told in verse 11, And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations, languages and kings. Uh, The idea of the passage is that John is called before he is recommissioned, before he is retasked to bring God's word to the nations, he is commanded to eat the word. Uh, When I was preparing for ministry and training to become a pastor, in our denomination we go through certain tests, and the first one is after your first year of seminary training. I went into my first year of seminary training, and I was an eager beaver. Uh, I wanted to learn. I I really applied myself. And then I was tested by the elders of my church, and uh, members of the church were allowed to join in and witness the test. And I was asked the question, Pastor, I wasn't a pastor, uh, Greg, how do you move from a scripture passage to a sermon? How do you go from the Bible to a message you bring to God's people? And I was ready for the question. 
I had studied what they call hermeneutics and homiletics in in my seminary, and I came out with 13 points of how you move from the scripture to the sermon. Point one, da-da-da-da-da, point two, da-da-da-da, point three, and I had them on the tip of my tongue, and I brought them out one after another, and I finished the question and thought, yeah, I got it. And then one of our elderly members raised his hand. And the chairman said, yes, brother so-and-so. And And he stood up and he said, brother Greg, when God called Jeremiah to be a prophet, he told Jeremiah to eat the word. When you have to bring God's word on Sunday, are you going to go through 13 steps? Or are you going to eat the word? And I said, my brother, I'm going to eat the word. What does it mean to eat the word of God? And why is it so important? To eat the word of God means that you are taking the Bible into your heart and soul. That you are ingesting the word of God. It is to you like daily bread. Remember the temptation God, the devil, gave to to, to Jesus when he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus' response was, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus said, More important than physical food is the scriptures to the child of God. More important than daily bread is the word of God to the people of God. What will be the tool that allows the witnessing of Christ to be maintained in these end times? How will the witnesses have the strength they need to bring the gospel when the whole world is telling them they're fools? We witnessed this past week, and and I don't know this uh, brother uh, Reimer. I have never met him, Pastor Derek Reimer. I don't know what he's like. And and I don't want to say that all his actions were right. I, I don't know. I wasn't there. But we witnessed this past week a pastor who, for whatever reason, was led to go into a local library during a drag queen story hour for all ages and to protest that drag queen story hour out of undoubtedly, we hope by all means, conviction and concern and just being so gripped by the wrongfulness of it and how it preys upon children. He brought a protest and he was there summarily removed from the building, charged, thrown into jail, and remains in prison at this current time. We witness that in our nation in this day. Leave aside all the details we don't know. We live in a world where if you stand up for children being sexualized in a public setting, in the name of Christ, you are condemned as a criminal. How will the church know what she is to do and be when the world tells her that to stand for Christ is a crime? When the world tells her this is not a sin, how will the church know who she is and where she stands and make sure she is able to bring a message, as the end of Revelation 10 says, to to peoples and nations and languages and kings, she must eat the word of God. She must have the word of God as the source of her truth, the source of her strength. Remarkably, Ezekiel was also told to eat the word of God in Ezekiel 2 and 3. And if you read through those two chapters, you can do it for homework between services. 
you'll find that God calls Ezekiel to eat the word of God because he's sending Ezekiel to a people who is hard of heart and who won't listen, who won't hear his words. And so he says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, eat the word and don't be afraid of them, though they whip you with thorns and briars and though you stand among scorpions, eat the word of God and do not fear. For these witnesses to stand in the last days They must first hear the command of Christ to eat the word of God. And beloved, the punchline of my sermon, the secret I haven't told you, is that we are the witnesses. The two witnesses are not super Christians who have come on the stages in the last day. The two witnesses are not some kind of great um, sprawl type figure or great MacArthurish type figure. The two witnesses, special call, uh, the two witnesses are the church filled by the Holy Spirit. That's going to be the idea. We're going to get there in a minute. But in order for us to be the church, in order for us to stand by Christ, in order for us to know what it means to be Christians in this world, We can't just have a surface level understanding of the scriptures. We can't just come to church to to, to hear a talk that can entertain us for a few minutes. We can't just have a practice of thinking that our responsibilities will be fulfilled by someone else. We have to eat the word. No one else can eat your food for you. If you are very hungry, you wouldn't say to someone else, well, hey, can can you eat my supper? I'm starving. Can you finish off my lunch? I'm just really hungry and need to make sure I have strength for the day. Will you eat my sandwich for me? That would never work. To the contrary, we are called personally to ingest and imbibe the word of God into our hearts and our minds and our lives. And before we proclaim it to others, we must hear its proclamation to ourselves. Why is the word of God sweet in, in John's mouth but bitter in his stomach? Why is there a twofold concept to him eating the word of God? And there's been many thoughts by theologians on what this could mean. It can mean the gospel is sweet and the forgiveness of God is beautiful, but to eat the word of God often means suffering, and therefore it can be bitter to suffer for Christ. Others have said that the word of God is always sharper than any double-edged sword, not only to the world, but also to the church, also to you and to me. And therefore, eating the word of God shows us the beauty of Christ, but it also reveals our sin. Why do we have a practice as a church of confession of sin here and a prayer of confession? Because if the word of God is not cutting to our souls, we aren't reading it. One of my favorite stories in pastoral ministry is when I stood at an elevator door waiting to go up in an apartment building to visit a member of our church, and I had my Bible in my hand. And a man stood beside me waiting for the elevator and he saw the Bible in my hand. He said to me, did you ever cut yourself on that thing? And it just brought a cheer to my heart. And I said, actually, I have many times. And then he said, but it cuts in the sweetest of ways, doesn't it? If we don't hang on to the scriptures if we don't go to the word of God as our source of truth and light and strength, if we don't let it reveal us and show our pride and our arrogance, our unforgiveness, how do we maintain grace and truth in an age when sin may just twist our stomachs? You know that as a church, right? That we live in a world where sin may get all the worse 
where the depictions of sin make it all the worse. And yet, we are to remember that we are called to love those who are our enemies, to pray for them, to plead with them, to know the grace of God offered to them freely in Jesus Christ. How can we maintain a spirit that is able to know what is true and what is wrong and false, and yet show grace to the very people who carry out what is evil? Only by having the word of God that shows us Christ in our hearts. So before we move on to the second point, I have to ask, beloved in the Lord, do you eat the word? Do you eat the word? Do you come to church and then the message just disappears by the time you get to the car? Do you read the scriptures in the morning at all? And if you do, does it stay with you? Are there portions of the Bible that you delve into, that you study most, more seriously, that, that you, you pull out a commentary for, or, or try to find cross-reference on and say, what does this mean? What is God telling us? I want to know the word of God. Beloved, we are called to eat the scriptures. And that is indeed a preparation and necessity for being God's witnesses in this world. We cannot stand for truth. We cannot prophesy to people's nations, languages, and kings if we don't know what it is to eat the word of God. Secondly, secondly, who are the witnesses? And this is, this is the punchline, and this is something we need to understand. Who are these witnesses? Chapter 11. Uh, John is given a measuring rod like a staff and told to rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. In the book of Revelation, when there is a call for measurements, it is a call that shows that God uh, knows the thing being measured. He knows it well. In Revelation 21, John will be called to measure the holy city as well, the new Jerusalem that has come down like a bride from heaven for, 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 uh, prepared for, for Christ. This idea of measurement means that God knows this thing and he also protects it. When John is called to measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship, this shows that what is being measured, this belongs to God. This is God's. There are three things that show us what this is. First of all, the temple. This is where God's presence is. This is where God's spirit abides. The altar, what was that for? Do the children remember what the altar was used for? It's very simple. It starts with S and ends with Iphis. What's the altar for? It's for the place of sacrifice, Right? The temple shows God's presence. The altar reminds us of the blood of Jesus. And those who are there are defined as those who worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What is John called to measure? He is called to measure the church. But not just the church externally. Because he'll be told there's an outer courtyard. And that is not to be measured. Because that will be given to be trampled under the feet of of the nations until the time is fulfilled. We are learning here of a church that stands by faith in Jesus Christ, that is filled with the Holy Spirit of God, that is washed in the blood of Jesus, that worships Christ. And we are told that she will be protected and known by God the Father through all the days that are to come. They will never be snatched from his hand. But if you are a false professor... If you are one who claims Christ but doesn't follow Christ, if you appear in church but don't love the Lord, there is no protection there. There is no protection to being near to the temple or near to the altar or near to those who worship. The only protection is being under the blood of Christ. To know personally what it means to be saved. That's why Brother Van Dyke spoke about how baptism is not a guarantee of salvation. 
It joins them to the church. They come into that outward uh, administration of God's covenant promises, but they are called to take those promises personally, aren't they? They are called to receive it, to become those who are in the temple, under the blood, worshiping the Father. There's a protection here and a warning. But then the passage moves right away from that picture of measuring these individuals, this temple, this altar, this gathering of those who worship, to the idea of the two witnesses, verse 3. There's no disconnect. The two run together, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, if you like numbers. The number of months and the number of days both speak of the same period of time, roughly three and a half years. And that is a period of time used in Revelation repeatedly to speak of the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. It captures the entire time of, of this uh, age in which we are called to witness, in which we wait for the return of our Savior. Uh, They are clothed in sackcloth. We'll get to that in a moment. And then it says in verse 4, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now here's where you're going to be tested because you haven't studied Revelation already with me. You're coming in late. I forgive you. But in the book of Revelation, what do lampstands stand for? Do you know? What do lampstands stand for? You go to Revelation 2 and 3 and the end of Revelation 1 to find out they stand for the church. The faithful church. Remember in the letters that Christ writes to the churches, he says to them, if if they're not living properly, he says, if you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand. You will no longer be my witnesses. You will no longer be my church. The idea of the lampstand stands for the church. But what are the olive trees for? And this time you have to know a little bit more about the book of Zechariah. Whew. The olive trees. In the book of Zechariah, Zechariah saw a vision because the lampstands are based upon the lampstand that was found in the temple of God in the Old Testament. It was a sevenfold lampstand, sometimes called a menorah. And if you remember it, if, if kids have seen it, it has a single stand up the middle and it has like these three increasing bowls or, or, or scoops with candles across the top. So the, the number of candles is seven in total, the one in the middle, and then the two sets of, three sets of two going out from it. And that lampstand was in the temple of God, and it was something God commanded that the priests could never allow to be extinguished. That lamp had to burn day and night all the time because it was a sign of God's spirit with his people. And what's remarkable is Zechariah in the Old Testament was given a vision of how these lampstands were were fueled by olive trees fueled by a constant source of oil so they can never go out. Who are the two witnesses? They are the church, fueled by the Spirit of God. Is this confirmable or defensible by any other passage in the Bible, or am I just making things up? Well, if we go to Acts 1, when the church age begins, Jesus says to the church, Remain in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What does Jesus do? He shows how the church will be filled with the Spirit. And when the church is filled with the Spirit, they will be his witnesses. As we look through the pages of history in Revelation... 
As we see beasts rise up from the earth and attack the church and blaspheme the name of God. As we see saints put to death for the testimony of Christ. As we see a war between the dragon and the church. And we hear of the church overcoming the dragon by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And because they did not love their lives even unto death. As we see all these things in the book of Revelation. The Bible tells us that in the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of all the struggle. God will empower his witnesses and they will bear witness to the name of Christ and to the glory of God. Even in the darkness and the lamp will never be extinguished because it is given fuel from the very spirit of God. Who will never leave her and never forsake her. Who are the witnesses? They are you and me. They are those who stand by faith in the name of Christ. As we live in a world of increasing chaos, increasing evil, increasing struggle, we are to find our hope not in ourselves, we are to find our strength in the Spirit of God. And we are to do the one task that we know we are called to do. Lift high the cross of Jesus Christ. Nothing else will conquer the sin of our world. Nothing else will will lay hold of the hardness of heart that is found in people who rebel against the gospel. Bear witness to a Savior who is able to save. Speak the name and truth of God. Do this in the way you live. Do this in the way you work. Do this in the way you serve in your neighborhoods. Do this in the way you speak. Do this in the way you share about Christ. You are my witnesses to the Savior. By the grace of God, the lamp will not be extinguished until her work is done. Until her work is done. I heard of a saint once who was laboring in the gospel ministry. He was a pastor and he was ill. And he was wondering what would happen and how long he'd have to work. And a friend went up to him and said, don't worry. You're immortal until your work is done. You're immortal until your work is done. And when your work is done, not a day will extend it. Do you know what? The church is immortal until her work is done. It will not be stopped. It will not be stopped. And the task of witnessing, we've kind of begun it already, the task of witnessing, it comes at the end of chapter 10. You must again prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. We are to be a bastion of truth in this age. We are to stand for what is right. We are to proclaim what is good and holy and true and what is evil and wicked. We are to stand as one who later in the passage, these, 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 these witnesses are said to torment the people of earth. Why? Because they testify against them that their deeds are evil. In John 7, Jesus said, uh, If you were mine, you would love me, but you're of the world and you hate me. Uh, The world hates me because I testify to the world that its deeds are evil. Why is the church considered to be a torment for the world? Because we stand for what's true. We stand for what's right. And we don't change our message when everyone wants us to change. The task is not only that we stand for what is right, the very idea of witnesses and the very idea of a lampstand. The very idea of being fed by the Spirit of God is that we are not witnesses of ourselves. We're witnesses of Christ. Do you know why Paul spoke of the gospel 
as a statement worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom he is chief. Do you know why Paul said that in 1 Timothy 1.15? Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Do you know why he said that? He said that God did this as an example of the power of God unto all who will call upon his name. Paul said, I want you to look at my life. I want you to see who I was. I persecuted the church of God. I hated the name of Jesus. I tried to kill anyone who stood for Christ. And God saved me. And he did this to show you that he is able to save anyone, no matter their background, who calls upon the name of the Savior. He is able to save anyone because he is the Lord. And the testimony we bring is not merely about right and wrong, although that's part of it. The testimony we bring is of a Savior who is able to save the worst of sinners, A Savior who went to the cross, that he might pay the penalty that horrific sinners deserve at the hand of a holy and sovereign God. We testify of a Savior who is able to wake the dead and open the eyes of the blind. We testify of a Savior who, who when all opposed him and all mocked him and all proclaimed him to be false and full of sin, went to the cross in the midst of their jeering and, and, and their condemnation that he might redeem. And his final words were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. No, just Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, I know not what they do, is the words of Stephen. Pardon me. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. We witness to a Savior who loves this broken world and who loves these broken people so much that he laid down his life to save them. And we are his witnesses. The power of these witnesses we don't have time to cover uh, it's neat to see how fire goes out from them. And the, the power of the witnesses is based on two prophets, Elijah and Moses. Elijah, who called a nation in apostasy to repentance. And Moses, who called a nation in persecution to find their redemption in Christ. The church is given power in its prophecy that none who stand against them will ultimately triumph. None who stand against them will ultimately be victors. The message will not be stopped. The word of God will not be quenched. The word of God is not merely a word of condemnation. The word of God is a message of a God who sees all the sin of the world and so loved the world that he did not Spare his only son. What are we called to be in a world that is becoming increasingly evil? The answer is not to be increasingly bitter. It is not to be increasingly harsh. It is not merely to be increasingly judgmental, although we stand for truth. Is to be a church that proclaims the truth and the grace that is found in Christ. The truth and the grace that has transformed us. That saved us. That knows how dark the path is because we've walked it. That's why we had to eat the word of God to begin with. Because it exposes our sin before we look at the sin of others. It shows our need before we look at the need of others. 
We live in a world filled with sinners just like you and just like me that God can redeem by the power of Christ. And we are called to proclaim and witness to the power of the gospel. Because the church will not fail as it's upheld by the Spirit of God. And the Word of God will not return empty. For some it will be the aroma of death leading to death indeed, but for others the aroma of life leading to life, and only God is worthy to determine to whom that will be. Beloved in the Lord, We are God's witnesses. And we always have been. In seasons where the church was more readily received, the church more widely praised in the world, did we use that opportunity to bear witness to Christ? Were we as passionate to proclaim the need of a dying world for a savior when the world had better morals? Now that those morals are failing, will we err on the other side and forget a gospel for a dying world? Think our faithfulness is only in judgment. Think our faithfulness is only in proclaiming sin. Have we failed to proclaim sin to a good world? And will we fail to proclaim grace to a wicked one? Both these things must be avoided. And they are only avoided as the church holds forth the cross. As the church lifts up Jesus. But loving the Lord, may God help us eat the word of God. May the word be sweet in our mouths and sometimes bitter in our stomachs. And may the Lord empower us by his Holy Spirit to be the people he has called us to be in this world, to bear witnesses to the beauty and the glory and the truth and the grace that is found in Christ. And may God prove that his word will never return empty. And the church will be immortal until her work is done. Amen. Let's join together in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, Lord God, we do pray that you will forgive us for our sin. Uh, Lord, please allow the word of God to cut our hearts. Please, don't let us be above the scriptures. Don't let us be above your truth. Don't let us think that we are above the world in need of a savior. Father, show us how great our sin is and lead us to know the grace that is found in Christ. And then, Lord, help us to stand for what is true and right and holy, but also, we pray, help us to stand for what is filled with grace, what offers mercy to the chief of sinners, the Savior who has looked all the sin of this world full in the face and has still submitted himself to the cross and the wrath of a holy God that he might save Sinners who are worthy have only one end. And Father, we pray that you will give us a compassion for the lost, even as we have a zeal for the truth. And we pray, Lord, that by your mercy and by your word and spirit in our hearts and lives, we may be our faithful witness of the goodness and the glory and the grace of our God. Will you help us, we pray? Will you forgive us our weaknesses? 
May you anchor us in Christ. Help us to love the scriptures. And may we more and more abiding abiding in your word. I know it is proclaim your word in all its fullness for the glory of your name and the salvation of your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.